Hi, I'm Andrew Muir, Creative Director at Ardent Theatre. If you enjoy this show, please share, subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Go to a typical UK theatre show and for every ten people in the audience, seven will be women. This isn't new. Surveys in the 1980s showed that at least half of theatre audiences were women. At that time, much like today in fact, the most important and prestigious jobs in theatre were held by men. Women faced a glass ceiling made of stone. One of the key stereotypes about women directors was, yeah, women were okay on the small scale, but large scale plays like Pravda, that sort of meaty work couldn't be done by women. I'm Andrew Muir, and this is Activism in the 80s, where we chart the protests and culture wars that changed lives in Britain, Ireland, and beyond. In this episode, three female theatre professionals unpack the challenges for women and women's theatre at that time. Director Sue Dunderdale hosts this conversation with historian and dramaturg Dr Susan Croft and producer Jill Lloyd. We were working in that field of kind of performance, alternative theatre, work that didn't quite fit into anybody else's category. So we were in a lone furrow to begin with. And Arts Admin was started in 79. We were an all-woman organisation for our first probably 15 or 20 years. We didn't employ any men. I mean, we worked with some male artists. And when we did employ a man, John Ashford joined us for a while after I think he'd been at the place. When he was working for us, he was great. He was a pleasure to work with. But when people from outside came in, oh, can we talk to the governor? Was the approach always. He was an extraordinary artistic director because at the ICA, I very early on took a play by Melissa Murray about three women getting drunk and talking about their lives. And he produced it for us. We, we did it there at the ICA. And I remember once stopping to say thanks to him as I was walking, because I'd known him briefly at Manchester University. And he said, well, I have to confess, I hate the play, but I thought I should be doing work that I didn't like, not just reflected me, which is, I've never heard any other artistic director say. It's rare. <laughs> it's rare. Yes, I mean, the kind of influential women that we were working with, and we weren't particularly influential at that time, we were financially struggling as a young organisation, yeah. as arts admin, and seeing lots of influential women in Europe, people running venues and being quite big producers, but we weren't seeing that for ourselves in England. And the same for the artists, to be honest. The artists were getting big fees in Europe and struggling in England, so that was quite a parallel, but... I mean, I suppose the woman artist that we worked with in the 80s, who was quite high profile or is now, is Bobby Baker. She forged her own way with her very kind of personal performance work and was one of the big artists at Arts Admin at that time. Jerry Pilgrim, was she? Jerry was yeah. in and out of Arts Admin. I mean, Jerry was around with the People Show when she had her company and she was based then in the People Show studios. And then she did bits of work in and out of Arts Admin in the early days, but then she went off and had her own funding for a while and her own company. What was her company called? Oh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I know. Hesitate and Demonstrate. Hesitate yes. and Demonstrate, that's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, she was very early influential yes. performance yeah. artist. And often people now who see shows like 
punched drunk, don't really know about Jerry no. Pilgrim's work. No. Which is really sad. Absolutely. I mean, truly, really yes. amazing show at Toynbee Studio. Yeah. An amazing show not in immersive theatre in the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital and so yeah. on. Incredible stuff that, yeah. that completely was, transformed yeah, the space. Yeah. true of a lot of people who do physical and performance work now. They have no idea of all the work that was developing through the 60s and into the 70s, mm. which is sad. In terms of what was going on in the 80s, I remember I would go through Time Out magazine on a weekly basis and then later City Limits, and I would underline every time I saw a woman writer or a woman director in the West End listings and the well, off-West End listings. There were few and far between, but there were certain venues where the work was happening, and I hung out a lot at Oval House under Kate Crutchley, yeah. who programmed such a fascinating array of work. Also at Soho... So when did you start at Soho I College? started as associate in 83, I think, and I took over as artistic director in 84. Right, so I was at Soho, going to Soho Poly when you were yeah, there. Yeah, and we did quite a lot of female playwrights. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then the drill hall. And there were probably a few other places where things happened from time to time, but it was all the alternative venues yeah. where the work was happening. And a very, very few in Royal Court, maybe. Max Stafford Clark, whose name we're no longer allowed to mention we are. We're positively. Allowed to mention but, it. but actually, you know, he did an amazing amount of work in terms of supporting women playwrights, actually. I you know. know developing but, Carol Churchill's yeah. work with yeah. joint stock and so on and helping her sort of find the context in which to develop amazing plays like yeah. Cloud Nine and Light Shining in Buckinghamshire and so forth. That model of writing was obviously really yeah. important and collaborating with her actors and then later with dancers and other mm -hmm. artists and so on, really important in terms of her experiment. So I was kind of going to see whenever I could afford it, any woman playwright I could find. I think Theatre of Black Women brought their show Kira Scoro to Soho. Soho, did they? Yeah. When I was there. I think it would have been in the 80s. When, yeah, so. so I left in 88 and I went to Greenwich and I employed women directors there, Sue Wilson and Penny Churns, and put on plays by Wendy McLeod, American, Melissa Murray and so on, but got accused of, what was it, somebody on the board said, there are too many ladies around here and not enough meat. It wasn't a pleasant environment to work in at Greenwich. But we did start to change things. But there weren't many role models for us or other women working in establishment theatre. We were all in alternative theatre. So that's what led to the Standing Conference of Women Theatre Directors and Administrators and our quest with that to put pressure on the establishment to employ and nurture women directors and playwrights. Have you any thoughts about that kind of pressure on the establishment or that interaction between the alternative and the establishment, if there was any or it had any impact? I think it was everywhere. Everything from going to see the accountants to the lawyers to anybody else. We were kind of treated as girls who needed a bit of fatherly help and advice. Yeah. And, uh, and that... That really sticks, that that was how we were treated. And I'm sure with a lot of the older men working in theatre, we were seen the same way, these kind of young women trying to forge ahead with this company. It was hard to be taken seriously, really hard, and with the funders too. 
And it took years and years to get Arts Admin funded as its own organisation with its own artistic plans, etc. The Arts Council could be very helpful but also very obtuse. I remember mm. endless arguments about they give you money for workshop work for writers and I'd be saying, but what really helps a writer to develop are productions, mm. especially at somewhere like the Soho. You know, mm. we turn over, we were doing six or seven productions a year paid and that really moves the writer on and that was really hard to get through to them mm. because it was a bit more expensive. Yeah, yeah. I, I started going, I guess, round about the um, mid-80s to various stunning conference events and I know they also had events which I think they sort of sponsored at the drill hall where you, as a young woman aspiring to be a director, which is what I was at that point, you could go along and meet other women directors, yeah. older women directors, yeah. and hear about their experience. Yeah. And that yeah. was really important. In fact, I've been talking to a young woman three years out from university recently, and she's saying there's nothing like that now, and that they want that sort of sense of mentorship and yeah. passing on experience and so on, even though things now are so much better in that there are women running buildings and a number that just, you know, wasn't the case back then. And then Women's Playhouse Trust, which... Just in terms of the visibility both of women writers, directors and actually women's history in the theatre and the fact that they put on the Lucky Chance and Afro Ben play at a time when nobody was putting on Afro Ben and then did Entazaki Shanger's Spell Number no. 7. So African-American work, early work, there was this history that was so really important. They had a series of workshops about putting women centre stage, which included some workshops using psychodrama for women to kind of look at what were the obstacles, the internalised obstacles yeah. to success. The fact that you hadn't been brought up to consider yourself as having any authority and then mm. obviously bank managers and so on are assuming that you don't have any authority equally. So how are you going to build up that sense of being a director, being a person in charge when the whole of your know, socialisation has worked against that? And that was fascinating. I mean, standing conference, standing conference of women theatre directors and administrators, the worst title in the world, was very influential over that first two or three years, 82 to about 83, 84. And then Women's Playhouse Trust came out of that. I had to argue with the ICA to be able to have a women-only event. And there was a big all-women event at the Young Vic, which had all the writers you can think of, Carol Churchill... Beryl Bainbridge, Angela Carter. That was an extraordinarily influential conference. And then it was out of those discussions that Pam Gems, me, Sue Parrish, Rosemary Squire decided to start Women's Playhouse Trust and then Jules Wright joined us. And when some of us drifted off, Jules continued it. And it had a big influence apart from the fact that we never got the theatre, and I still think there's room for a theatre dedicated to women's work, directing, acting and writing. And I think the other key thing that they did, and then subsequently um, Women's Theatre Group, or Sphinx as it became, yes. did was gathering the statistics. 
actually saying, OK, how many women are employed in what roles and particularly in, in directors and then artistic directors and how many women playwrights yeah. are getting produced yes. and so on. And then there's a correlation that you can see immediately when there are women in charge that they are doing more work by but women. There are very few women in charge of establishment companies and the major female playwright was Agatha Christie. Yeah, and some of the sexism, I mean, there was a quote which... Maybe it was apocryphal in some level, but a male artistic director saying, of course I'd employ a woman, I'd also employ a one-legged Chilean refugee. And it was yeah. equally absurd, mm, the yes. idea of employing as, a woman as, as a director. Of, um, mm. I can't remember whether it's Standing Conference or Women's Playhouse Trust, but we went to meet with the artistic directorship at the National Theatre. And they were all men. And they brought Gillian Diamond, who was a casting director. She was fantastic. She came and sat on the side of the table with us and argued with them. Basically, their stance was we employed the best. And when you tried to examine what the best was, it was them. So it was a circular argument. Yeah, I, I think really they do. would employ an occasional woman to do a platform performance. And then at the RSC, I think they would have a woman staff director. Another woman would come in and then she'd leave. And exactly. And that was the only yeah. space for a woman to be. And I think it was through those organisations and our work when we were in leadership positions that we were pushing for more equality. What about work on South Africa or with anti-apartheid or with the miners' strike, which was 84 to 85? Well, with South Africa, I mean, it, it's quite interesting that just through the luck of knowing Mary Benson that my relationship was with the ANC. And that, in a sense, was far easier and more direct. And the anti-apartheid movement probably didn't like what I was doing very much because they felt it was muddying the waters. I mean, all the shows that we brought had been approved by the ANC people in South Africa. And I remember when I brought You Strike the Woman, You Strike the Rock, um, we did a week in each area of London. And I had a real struggle with the anti-apartheid movement in Hammersmith. They were basically saying that I must be exploiting these people. And then the women in Strike the Woman, they just laid into the guy who was leading the anti-apartheid movement and saw him off, basically. That was quite complex in that we were working, sort of circumventing almost the anti-apartheid movement in the UK who were supposedly garnering the support for the ANC and for what was happening in South Africa. So it was quite a complex relationship that happened across those areas. But they were very powerful women who, no matter what had happened to them in South Africa, they certainly found their voices when they were touring internationally. Yeah. But we at Soho, we had a lot to do with the striking miners. Yeah. All, all mm. alternative theatre did then. We couldn't give any proceeds from a production because of... Arts Council rules, mm. but we did a Sunday night benefit because we didn't perform Sundays then, and yeah. then a bucket collection for miners mm. who came down. It was a miners' wives and miners who came down. We organised, here we go, the miners' wives' benefit at the yeah. Piccadilly Theatre in the end of November 1984, which was a fantastic event, and... Every well-known actress you can think of then, Juliet Stevenson, Jane Lapater, Julie Walters, they were all on stage doing their thing mm. and the women came down in coach loads. Yeah. That was a, a fantastic event. Well, I, I was coming up to see some of that work 
I was in Colchester, and so they were bringing coal in through Wivenhoe, so we were were going down to join the pickets there and also did a cabaret, I think, in the student bar to support the miners and so on. But so I wasn't very directly involved in that, but I do remember for Seasway players coming over. Mm. So And would that have been like 88 or something? It was 86. 86. They toured then for several years all over the place. But I remember, because there's a nice link there for Conference of Women Theatre Directors and Administrators, I produced a conference called Interventions because we saw that there were a number of shows which were centrally focused on women or directed by women. And they were on a larger scale because one of the key stereotypes about women directors was, yeah, women were okay on the small scale domestic... Educational educational theatre. Or in a little space looking at family dynamic or whatever Mm. it might be. But large scale plays like Pravda, which was on around that time at the National Theatre and had a cast of about 23, I think it was, of which six were women. That sort of meaty work which showed a whole society, that stuff couldn't be done by women because they only worked on that small scale. So this conference interventions looked at Jesusa Rodriguez who had brought Donna Giovanni, Fusiswick players, and I think a show from the then Yugoslavia. So trying to explode those stereotypes, saying well, actually women can do that work, we're just not given the resources and the large spaces to work in. And so that needed to be challenged. And as, as late as the 90s, I think Nicholas Heitner was still coming out with that sort of stuff oh. about women directors and what they could or couldn't do. That brings me to Pam Gems, who was one of the biggest feminist names in that period. She sent, I think, Camille or Queen Christina, one of them, to the royal court and they sent it back to her because it would be more attractive to women than men. I mean, it was very, very blatant, no consciousness, that women were over 50% of the audience, which was one of the things we discovered in the survey, that more women were going to the theatre than men and often it was women who took their male partners, if they had male partners, to the theatre and yet all the establishment theatres were run by men at that time. And this is still the case. There was something in one of the weekend newspapers about the fact that most theatre tickets are booked by women and men go along because they're being taken, but they rarely instigate as a kind of very general rule in in a family situation. And the women then are making the choices. Yeah, exactly. So you need to actually address them in your publicity. (laughs) Were there major female voices that were speaking out for women's theatre outside of alternative theatre that you can think of, apart from Pam Gems, Carol Churchill, although she was still really in alternative theatre? I guess there was starting to be work at the Royal Court to some extent, more women there. I'm struggling at the moment to think of of names. but Carol Churchill. Carol Churchill Mm. was kind of the key one. Yes. Uh, she was the key writer. Sarah Daniels. Yes, know, masterpieces her, her was, was important. Uh, developing then. But there were so few women in leadership positions in that world. Mm. Privately, I know that women who were establishment administrators like Janista McIntosh and Gillian Diamond were supportive, but they weren't speaking out publicly about 
the discrimination, really, mm -hmm. the lack of representation mm -hmm. of women in the establishment theatre. I know that the um, Conference of Women Theatre Directors and Administrators did an event called The Casting of the Woman Ad Theatre Administrator and about the sort of stereotypes which attach to yeah. her. And as you say now, it's not called administrator yeah. anymore, which sort of tends to suggest a support role. Mm. Producer has much more status yeah. in itself, yeah. and that's actually yeah. what was happening. Yeah. I mean, this was the often single individual who is supporting a whole mm. company and doing the booking and the marketing and the fundraising and the sponsorship, if any, and the, uh, mm. all of that, yeah. but was seen as this sort of support role and, you know, was she your mum, was she your accountant? Was mm -hmm. All these stereotypes which attached yeah. to the It was all about facilitating role. and not yes. about being... Being the yeah. managing, there, yeah. was, there managing was no manager or being, part of or it. being the creator, because the producer yeah. can be is yeah. can well, be very I creative. Mean, producer has now really morphed into creative producer. Yes, it, most it producers has. are now titled in that way, or executive producer, or yeah. that, there's a kind of eve leveling up rather yeah. than it being male artistic director, woman helpmate and mm. supporter yeah. in an administrative role. How did you feel as we moved into the 90s? Did you feel that all the work that had gone on, pushing at the establishment, making the alternative more visible and more attractive to audiences, did you feel that we were on the verge of change or the change was developing? Yeah. <laughs> I suppose a lot of the work I was still doing then was around the South African story. Yeah. And interestingly, I suppose, with work coming here from South Africa was it was coming from the market theatre, which to the rest of the world was like the National Theatre. And it was primarily run by two men, Manny Manum and Barney Simon. But there were women in quite key roles artistically around a lot of the work there, people like Vanessa Cook and Janice Honeyman, who were beginning to direct and have proper roles. And then when the shows were coming overseas, it was really about what work was available and was approved by the kind of ANC people there. And so it didn't feel that there were quite so many barriers necessarily everywhere because there was a whole fight going on against the big oppression in South Africa. And it was quite complex then as things were changing and the country was slowly changing and moving towards Mandela coming out of prison, etc. Then the focus became far more on if you're a white director or a black director and where you repositioned. Yeah. And someone like Phyllis Klotz, who directed Strike the Woman, she just blazed through everything. She left her white family in Cape Town and moved to Joburg with Small and Darva, who was an, another director, and they set up Sibiqua Arts, which was a training and theatre company in the township, working with all young people. And uh, she's just retired now, a few weeks ago. I think there were a, a number of success stories which meant we felt that things were beginning to change. So I'm thinking in particular of, say, Annie Castledine going to Derby Playhouse with Lily Susan Todd as associate director, where she programmed The Innocent Mistress by Mary Picks, first time it had been ever done since the Restoration, and Gerlind Reinshagen, Sunday's Children. So women playwrights being programmed by a woman director, and I think she also did Purgatory in Ingolstadt, Maria Louisa Fleisser play. So 
I was very aware of the kind of enrichment that happened when women did take charge. And I'm, I'm not quite sure who else, maybe the Royal Exchange came a bit later, but there's, you know, there were... Royal Exchange was a lot later. Right, but there are, there the, are beginning the to... Or a theatre cluid with Helena Couthausen and so on. You know, there's gradual change yeah. beginning to take place when women do take over buildings. And so I felt there was a, a degree of optimism about that. And, you know, I know that women playwrights, I worked with, like April de Angelis, she was beginning yeah. to make quite an established career and Playhouse Creatures came through at some point, yeah. which is her big success. Winsome Pinnock, who had her first play with the Half Moon Young People's Theatre, and that's a very important area yeah. to mention, how much writing for young people's theatre, think companies like Theatre Centre were. Right, David yeah. Johnston has to be mentioned, who brought in women playwrights and ended up setting up a women's company alongside the mixed company. And lots of women like Lisa Evans and so on got their um, careers started. There were a lot of, of, uh, of new talented women writers who were doing work there yeah. and directors as well who then went on elsewhere. Ruth McKenzie went to Red Ladder, I think, and then she championed Kuli Tiari, who has gone on to do wonderful things in the mm. National Theatre of, of Wales, now at Leeds City of Culture and so forth, after having run the Leicester Haymarket. So change was beginning to happen. Yeah. And I moved out of London to Nottingham initially and then to um, Manchester. And so I was getting a different perspective on it and it felt slow, but that... I think the Arts Council were beginning to take it more seriously as well. Jackie Kay was a qualities officer at some point. Nassim Khan, and they had Minority Arts Advisory Service. And so the whole issue of um, the exclusion of women and minorities from roles and positions of power and representation on boards and work being done, all of that felt like it was bubbling up. Yes, and... Mine was slightly different experience because I'd had such a wonderful free time at the Soho Theatre. And then the Arts Council said, you've got to close, you're the highest subsidised theatre in the country per seat. So I got the job as artistic director of Greenwich and went from what had been an amazingly supportive board and freedom to do what I wanted to a very large board of mainly old white men who loathed me very quickly and it became a soul-destroying struggle, really. Hmm. And very frustrating because you could see the... Towards the end of my time there, we did an Othello with a black Iago and a black Amelia and Asian Cypriots and we did a joint production with the TIE company called Greenwich 1789 in tribute to... Ariana Mushkini, 1789, which got audiences from places that Greenwich hadn't had audiences before, but it was too vicious a struggle for me. So I went into television as if that was going to be any more welcoming to women <laughs> than theatre, but that I was yet to find out. So it felt like a change of path for me, but because I realised that I'd had a soft time at Soho, I'd had a supportive board who wanted to do that work, and that my skill was not negotiating with boards. I think it's interesting how Rose and Lucy at Lyft worked through the 80s um, because they were bringing in quite 
big and unusual productions. Yes, they were. And negotiating with all of the theatres in London. But they were giving them something that they weren't getting from anywhere else and that Britain wasn't getting from anywhere else. And actually, I think that gave them quite significant power that the rest of us in our sector didn't have. That was very much of its time. But I think that led probably to the kind of programming you now see at the Barbican and various other venues around and that that work is now happening. And if you were trying to do that now, you probably couldn't do it. But they had the power over those venues to give them this extraordinary work once every two years. Battersea would be another one where that would be the case. They began to position themselves as the kind of venues which did that interesting international work. Yeah. I think another thing I'm thinking of which have started to happen in the 90s, I mean, also the late 80s and so on, is the much more visibility of, say, Yvonne Brewster with mm. Tallower. Yeah. Yes. Um, so a woman running, running that company yeah. or having set up that company. I mean, the earlier black theatre companies, Temba and Black Theatre Co-op, had sort mm. of been male-run yeah. but, and done a few shows by women here and there, but then we felt Mm. there was much more female presence in the companies like that. Then Tamasha comes along and eventually Carly doing Asian women's work. And those are all women run, Janet Mm. Steele and Christine Landon-Smith and Suda Butcher and so on. So there's women coming through in all those contexts as well, which I think is really important and doing lots of plays by women. But Um, also in terms of artistic directors of... Repertory theatres, we had Claire Venables at Sheffield, who then went into education because whether it was from Sheffield, she went to Stratford East and that only lasted a year. And then she went to the RSC as an education director and Mm. then to the Brit School. I never talked with her long enough to discover if that's what she wanted or Mm. felt she had a child to support, all those things. That's interesting because Jenny Harris did the same thing from the Albany to the National Education Department. But I think they also then make a difference in those education departments. They made a difference, but it was a way also of containing them as creative beings. Let's go back to the nature of the work that we were doing or we were seeing because I've talked about the Soho Poly and my freedom there but it was one of the most joyous and exciting times of my directing life because I was free to do whatever play that I wanted. And in that time, we did mainly all working-class writers at Soho Theatre. It was the interest of both myself and Brian Sterner, my associate director. I forged working relationships with Aisha Rafe, but also with Melissa Murray, who I'd worked with before, but... The first play of hers I did there, Coming Apart, was just an extraordinary play set in Berlin during the time of the Bader-Meinhof group with the police searches of apartment blocks coming in. And it was an extraordinary play, dealing with all the issues that were going on then to do with underground fighting, to do with terrorism, to do with the role of women, the impact of the war and so on. And Julia Kersley, who was explored the minutiae of family life and its impact on women trying to get away from it. For me, it was a real time of artistic freedom because if we had a full house, which was 50 people, it made not that much difference financially to us between that and eight people. Financially, we had that freedom. And it was helped by the Arts Council money we had, 
but also in that period I managed to persuade Westminster Council to match our Arts Council grant. So for a period of three or four years, we could do those seven or eight productions a year, all funded, which was fantastic. So that was my glorious time in the 80s. For you, well, yours, I should imagine, was the South Africa connection. Well, it was. And at the end of the 80s, in 88 and 89, the ANC decided they wanted to do a huge cultural festival in London called Zabalaza. And myself and my friend Linda Bernhardt were called in to produce it. So we had the head of the ANC culture working in the arts admin office for some months. And in the end, we brought over 120 young people from all across the arts. There were writers, poets, musicians, theatre groups. They did shows and we had what was then Yara Santua Art Centre and we had the ICA and Riverside and then we had the Shadwell Education Centre. So everyone had an education while they were here and they went to classes all day. And this was sort of in the height of the AIDS epidemic in South Africa. So we had people from the Africa Centre who came and did lots of the teaching. We did some training about HIV prevention and we handed out bags of condoms to everybody. Several of them came back to us about four days later asking for another supply. <laughs> so they were having a good time. <laughs> but um, it was just fascinating to see that number of people. And nowadays to see some of them as ministers in government. Yeah. Well, I suppose mine is New Playwrights Trust yeah. and Second Wave Young Women Playwrights Festival and so on. And that's yeah, incredibly important work. Of mm. new work bubbling up and actually yeah. making that happen. So there were a lot of related projects. I mean, I got a lot of support from the Half Moon Young People's Theatre specifically. They did Winston Pinnock's first play, The Wind of Change. They put on Angela Carter's Vampirella. They did some really interesting work and they created a space where we could workshop plays. So I did Penny O'Connor's Dig Volley Spike, April D'Angelis's play Breathless, which was her first piece that then went on to jointly win Second Wave Young Women's Playwrights Festival, and that was down in Deptford. And there were a lot of other young women, young black women in particular, locally, because we were working in Deptford with the local communities, encouraging women to think that they could write mm. and they could put their experiences on stage. Mm. And that really felt like it was transforming things and you'd get, you know, amazing audience reactions. And, you know, I was pleased that women were beginning to emerge who were focused on the larger spaces. But the alternative was alternative in that it was trying to do something different, reach people in different ways, go out to different audiences, be accessible to different audiences, to work for those different audiences and with them and tell different stories. And, and that really felt so exciting and that it was creating change. You know, I wanted to see women's stories everywhere, historically and contemporary, coming from all sorts of directions and and also be part of that. So I remember one of my really exciting experiences was going to see A Mouthful of Birds. I think David Land co-wrote it with, yeah, with Carol that. Churchill, yeah. but also working with Second Stride dancers. Yeah. And you'd have two male dancers, they're both wearing skirts and they're both indeterminate gender. And that was so exciting to see that kind of work. And then work like Siren, who were a lesbian feminist band and speaking really powerfully and then breaking up the action with these songs very much from that subject position. And you kind of thought, wow, this is all possible. And, you know, we are just beginning to break out of our ways Beryl of thinking. Beryl and the Perils were part of that perils. whole game. Yeah. Stunning, so, cunning stunts. Yeah. Cunning <laughs> stunts. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
so yeah. many when I went to count them in when I first set up Unfinished Histories, there were about 80 women's theatre companies that yeah. were started between the first one, which would have been um, the Women's Theatre Festival yeah. in 1973. Yeah. And then after that, they're just appearing all over mm. the place. Yeah. Not because the Arts Council would necessarily fund them, but because women in the business wanted to make work, you know, whether it was about spare tyre exploring body image, or whether it's cunning stunts, as you say, who, you know, are working with female grotesquerie where you're yeah. not having to conform to the stereotypical images of what women are supposed to look like on stage. Mm. So it's everything's being thrown into question and it was enormously exciting to yeah. be around that work. Thank you to Sue Dunderdale, Susan Croft and Jill Lloyd for that tour of the women's theatre scene in the 1980s. Next time on Activism in the 80s, how an epic strike by some extraordinary women inspired an adventurous woman playwright to write a thrilling stage production. To have the real strikers meet the people playing them, it was very special and their reaction and also actually other people involved in activism who had come and seen the show and been moved by it and felt that it was authentic. I was like, well, that's who I care about. Listen to the final episode of Activism in the 80s now, wherever you get your podcasts. Activism in the 80s is a podcast series recorded in response to the play Strike, written by Tracy Ryan and produced by Ardent Theatre Company at the Southwark Playhouse London in April 2023. This series has been funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and was produced by Creative Kin.